We're going to be looking at Exodus 16, well, kind of 15, the end of 15. We ended with the Song of Moses in 15 last week. And we're kind of going to be looking at the end of 15, all of 16, and then the beginning of 17. And I promise you, we won't read all those parts. But the reason I bring that up to you is because there are three stories that look really similar. Now, we've been going through the book of Exodus, and we've seen this story of God's continued deliverance of his people from slavery. And one of the things that we find out is that this image of slavery, of being uh, Pharaoh's people, is true not only physically for the people of Israel, but there's a slavery of their hearts. And God's continuing to do this work of freeing their hearts. And he does this as he compels his people by mighty actions, by mighty works, by showing them that he is a God who loves. The character of God that was revealed to their forefathers That's what they need to understand. They need to remember the things that they have heard. And so this morning, when we open up 16 and 17, we actually come just after what's uh, probably one of the most miraculous things of Exodus. God has parted the Red Sea. He's He's taken a sea of water and made walls when they were in their greatest despair, when Pharaoh was pressing in on them, and allowed them to pass through on dry land. I don't know if you can picture how amazing that is. There's so many people who have such a hard time that God could work such miracles. But if if this is not the work of God, then we can't explain it any other way. Israel has seen the hand of their God. And yet we get to these passages, we get to these verses, and we find something almost distressing, almost discouraging about the people of God. Because this doubt, this disease, this sickness, creeps quickly back up into their lives. They don't remember what God has done. Their nearness to God is is not yet processed that we are the people of of the Lord Almighty who can do wondrous things. So as we open up God's Word, I stir your minds to remember this because we need to see that we are struggling in the same way, that we need this God who continues to compel us back to Himself. I'm going to read all of chapter 16. I know it's a lot of verses, but it comes in the middle of the story. What's happened just after they uh, are delivered and Moses sings the song is the first thing that happens is they, they start into the wilderness. Within three days, they're parched. And they begin to plead. They begin to grumble, actually. What is going on? Why are we being left to this? And they come into contact with bitter water, which means poisonous water, water that's been sitting still for a while. And Moses throws a log in, and the water becomes sweet. And they see God provide. And God reminds them, he says, listen, if you trust me, I will not only keep you as my people, but I'll keep you healthy. And he contrasts the sickness that comes on on Pharaoh and his people as they walk away from God, as they don't trust, as they hold in the people of God, as they don't respond to his will. And he says, I'll keep you healthy. And he makes the bitter water sweet. And now we open up and we come to a passage that, that is beautiful again, of God providing the manna in the wilderness. So we'll start at verse 1. Again, I ask you to be patient as we read this long passage. They set out from Elim, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. The whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Whether we had died in the hand, at the, by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt... When we sat by the meat and ate 
bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, this is shocking. I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? Moses said, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but it is against the Lord. Then Moses, he said to Aaron, say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, They looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. As I read it long, and I'll look up, it's hard to find back. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer, according to the number of persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered and some more and some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, Let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they didn't listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them, and morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as they could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, and he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you'll bake and boil what you'll boil. And what is left over lay aside to be kept till morning. So they laid it aside till the morning, as Moses had commanded them. And it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. Moses said, Eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you will gather it. But on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found that there was none. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread to eat for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Now the house of Israel called its name manna, and it was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Moses said, This 
This is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations, so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, Take a jar and put an omer of manna in it, and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. And the people of Israel ate manna for 40 years. The people of Israel ate manna for 40 years till they came to habitable land. They ate manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's pray. Lord, as we read your word, we see beautiful promises of hope. Lord, yet that hope, it seems it comes out of the darkest darkness of our hearts. But Lord, this morning, as we look at the people of Israel, as we look at their grumbling, their discontentment, their distrust, Lord, that's us. Lord, we struggle to believe that you're the one who provides. And Lord, because we have plenty, we may not see it in the same way of Israel. Our grumbling may not look the same. Oh, Lord, but our hearts are discontent because we want so much more. And yet, Lord, as we see these things, we see your faithfulness. We see that you are enough, that you are our fill, that you are the fullness that we need. Lord, we ask that you bring that to our hearts this morning as we look at your word. Lord, fill us with your work. Fill us with that covenant steadfastness, Lord, that we uh, are so quick to forget. Fill us with Christ, Lord, the one who has done all that we need or could want, Lord, on the cross. Lord, we ask these things, hopeful of your work. Lord, knowing that we have seen you work before us, we have seen you work before the people of Israel, and knowing that you will continue that work even for us today. It's in your name we pray. Amen. What does it take for us to believe God? This morning, what does it take for you to believe and to trust God? As we open up this passage, we look and we read this long story. We see even in one story, one instance of God's provision, we see a people who have had the hand of God's blessing, the hand of God's grace, the hand of everything good of God with them. And yet, they still can't believe. In the New Testament, we actually see these stories. I've been reading through the book of John, and it's an amazing book because it captures a lot of who Jesus is. It captures a lot of his mighty works. And it's interesting that as Jesus does these incredible things, like feeds 5,000 and then 7,000 people, It's interesting that the Pharisees, they keep coming to him, and even his disciples at times, and they say, what are the miraculous things that you are going to do to show that you're the Son of God? You see, Jesus is revealing himself to be the Son of God, and yet they they continue to ask for more. And Jesus says, I will not give you another sign for what's been done before me, what's been done before you. If you will not believe, you'll never believe, is essentially what he says. We look in the Old Testament. Again, we look at these people. 
And we look back at the history of Israel, and already God has been doing wondrous things. We start at the beginning of creation, and what's happened? God has brought a people who should have been subject, objects of his wrath and curse. And he begins to work grace from the time of the garden. And yet Adam and Eve, they continue to struggle with unbelief. It's the plague of our hearts as we come to this passage. One of the realities is that we see it and we hear it, that God is a God who provides but we don't get it. It's interesting. Usually when I've heard this story told, when I remember it from a child, the, the thing that comes to mind, the lesson that comes to mind, is that God is Jehovah Jireh, God the provider. But what's kind of funny about that is that's absolutely true. But that's already been evidence to Israel and so many other things. The point of this passage is actually not to tell us that God is a God who provides. It's actually to tell us that God is Yahweh, the covenant, steadfast, faithful, loving God. You know how we, Chris and I keep using those words. That the thing is we need to see is that God is a God who fights and loves and cares for his people. So of course he's a God who provides. And so our call is not simply to see that God gives us the things that we want or just the things that we need but that he pours out his grace and his love on us. See, the point of this passage is to reveal to us the patient and redeeming love of God. And as we see those things, as we see that, as we see God who, who is always the same, always caring for his people, we hear two things. We hear, two, we hear a warning and we hear an exhortation. First, we hear this warning against grumbling. The people of Israel, they've seen God's hand, they've seen the mighty things, and we'll keep going back to that. And yet, their heart, in their hearts, and even outwardly, they grumble, right? And so we have a warning. And the second thing is that we have a call. In your outline, I think I had it, we're called to proclaim. Well, I thought that this is probably more accurate to the passage. It's not just a call to proclaim. And I think this actually reveals the grace of God more. It's actually a call to draw near. So we have a warning against complaining, a warning against grumbling, and we have a call to draw near. The first thing we see is that in our hearts, we're those who, apt, who are apt to complain, right? Apt to grumble. We look at the people of Israel and we see very quickly how they run to their own state of contentment, their own state of happiness. And this first feature of, uh, of grumbling, of complaining, is that it, it comes from this place of discontentment, right? They're parched. They're in the wilderness. They're hungry. They're in the wilderness. They're thirsty. They're in the wilderness. And you see, there's this reality that they're not happy with the situation. God, you've brought us to these places. How could you do this? They're unhappy. They don't see. They don't trust. They don't believe that they're in the plan of God. And they begin to grumble. They go to Moses and they say, why have you brought us here? And we see this reality that our complaining, our grumbling, comes from this place of not being happy with where God has brought us in our lives. And yet the reality is, and we begin to see, is that there's none of us who are where we are without the hand of God taking us there. That God can take us into struggles. He can take us into trials. And yet he's still there with us working his plan, working to call us to himself. So there's this first reality that 
in our complaining, we are discontent. And the second thing is, too, is that as we think about these things, they've also, there's also a forgetting, isn't there? That when we grumble, we're forgetting the reality of who God is. They've forgotten who they are. They've forgotten who God is. As you look at the cries of Israel, there's this echo of forgetting that God has done things before them, right? I mean, that's what we, that's what we keep saying. We keep revealing is that God has done wondrous things. We've talked through the Exodus. We've seen uh, mighty work after mighty work. And yet they just forget. They just forget. They continue to look at their present situation. One of the things Leslie and I talk about, and this is one of the struggles I think of marriage, is that Leslie and I, we talk about these different, we've talked in church in different ways, that one of the things that happens in marriage is we make these vows to each other. We make these vows, and these vows represent the character of who we're supposed to be to each other. Now, we don't do that perfectly. But there's times when those things are tested, right? When you have a friendship, when you have somebody that you're close to, those things, those things about that friendship are tested, right? Somebody uh, has a commitment that they have to follow through on. Somebody uh, is trying to work through a financial situation, and the other person is not sure about that. This happens with roommates. This happens with people that we're close to, doesn't it? Not just spouses. And one of the things Leslie and I have, have been working on is, is telling each other when we come to those places where we begin to doubt who each other is supposed to be to the other, Leslie will tell me, Lanier, remember, remember how I've always related to you. She's not telling me that she's related perfectly, but I know the character of her love. I know that her intent, her desire is to love me. And I tell her the same thing. Leslie, remember how I strug- I'm struggling to relate to you. And she remembers those things. They come as comfort. We see this reality that the way we understand each other's character comes from this place of remembrance. That we can't simply relate to each other in the present situation without remembering where we've come from, right? And that's what's happening with Israel. They've come to this place and they have no context for remembering God and His hand of provision for them. And that's what we do. We struggle with this. It's so hard. We, we struggle with realizing as a people of God, too, that what God has done before us, what God has uh, been doing in Israel, what God has done through Christ, that those are things that are meaningful for us. We begin to live in the present struggles, the present uh, temptations of our own sin, the situations of our heart, and we say, where, where could God be in this? And we fail to remember. The last feature of grumbling, I think, is this reality that when we grumble, one of the things we're doing is actually passing the blame, right? Part of, part of complaining is saying, this is something that, some, that is somebody else's fault, that somebody else has done. Look at Israel. They say, they come to Moses and they say, look what you've done to us. You've brought us into this place and, and we're going to die. We should have just died in, in, in Egypt because we would have been eating well at that point. You know, and over and over, you see this reality that Israel makes these almost ridiculous complaints. We would have rather died in Israel, well, where at least you're fat and full. I mean, in, in Egypt. They begin blaming. They begin to pass it off. You know, and this is, again, this is the problem from the beginning. Remember Adam's reply to God? What have you done? It was the woman you gave me. And the woman says, it was the serpent. We grumble, we're discontent, we complain. And the reality is that we have this outpouring of blaming others for our situation. 
If you think about it, if, if blame, the reason that we blame is because it's a way of passing the buck and justifying the things that we want to do. You know, sometimes we actually can lead in our sinfulness. A spouse who's cheated on his spouse or her spouse usually begins with this, this phrase, well, we haven't related well. She hasn't reached out to me. She hasn't connected with me. And that grumbling begins to justify our, the sin of our hearts. It's the strategy of Israel's complaint. Instead of asking God for help and seeking the leadership of Moses, they begin to accuse him. Now, it's interesting. We've got to take a little bit of a caution. As we talk about grumbling and complaining, I think about the Psalms, too. Have you all read the Psalms? The Psalms where the psalmist will come before God and he'll say, God, look at what's going on. In Psalm 22, for example, the psalmist comes and he says, Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths like a ravening and roaring lion. I'm poured out like water. And all my bones are out of joint. And he goes on and on like this for a while. And we get this kind of idea that it looks somewhat like what we're looking at here. But there's a difference in the psalms and there's a difference in the way that we complain and as, as people of unbelief and people of belief. That is that we don't come to God as those who grumble. Because the psalmist, this is how he continues. As he comes before God, he lays out his case. We see that it's not grumbling, it's not complaining. He says in verse 19, he says, But you, O Lord, do not be far off. You are my help. Come quickly to my aid. You see, the psalmist, he's not grumbling, he's not complaining, he's appealing to God. And there's this reality that what God is wanting for Israel... And when they come into the wilderness, he wants them just to come to them. The psalmist, when he was desperate, because he knew who he was, he knew who God was, he comes to him and he begins to plead. And there's this reality, and this is the second point you'll see of that, uh, the second sub-point, is that when we see what our grumbling is, we see that it's actually against God. We see our complaint, we see that it's against God, and the difference between appealing to God... And grumbling is this reality of unbelief, of distrust, that God has not done what he is supposed to be doing. Moses points this out very clearly. Look in 16.8 as we were reading through. Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. You see, Israel, they've tried this misdirection. They've come to Moses and they said, this is your fault. This is your problem. And the, the character of their unbelief is quickly revealed because Moses says, you think you're grumbling against me, but what you're actually doing is you're saying, God, you aren't good enough. You can't do what you said you've done. And he says, your grumbling is against the Lord. And that's where our grumbling and our complaining come from, too. That we're people who don't trust God's provision. We don't trust what he's doing in our life. We, we keep using this word trust. That believe that what he's doing is good and is bringing us to Christ and bringing us to the gospel and bringing us to the fulfillment of our salvation. And maybe even more so, we just don't believe that God's going to accomplish our plan. Because that's kind of what Israel wants. They want God to move them from Egypt to complete freedom and complete prosperity. But they have to go through this desert period, Right? They literally have to go through the desert in order to reach the promised land. And in the midst of these trials, their faith in God is revealed that it's nothing. 
If you've read, uh, I mean, if you watch movies, any scary movies, you'll be familiar with the sentiment that we should feel as we get through this passage. I was briefly watching, Leslie's gone, and so I'm watching a little bit of TV last night, and I was briefly watching, you know, the scary, the scary movie, and I actually don't even remember the name of it. Uh, it was on TNT or something last night. Anyway, there's these scenes, and it's, you kind of, you kind of hate, I hate scary movies because they scare me. I've not really... At the same time, they kind of pull you in, right? And there's this sensation as they walk into every dark room that something is about to happen. You start thinking, no, no, don't go in, don't go in, not again. And for some reason, this illogical reality of the writers, you know, they, can't, they continue to make their characters go into these rooms because it entertains us. And it calls our attention to it. And as we look at Israel, we actually see that this is how our hearts are supposed to be responding. These stories back to back of the water and the food and the water is actually this... The, the uh, writer of Exodus saying, okay, look how ridiculous this is. You can't, can't take your eyes up. It's like a train wreck, you know? You're stuck on there and you're saying, why do they keep going into this? Why do they keep walking away from God, even though God continues to provide? We're supposed to have this feeling of not again. I know y'all feel it probably in your own hearts. You deal and wrestle with your own sin. That you feel this reality, no, not again. In Galatians 3, Paul actually brings this reality up to the New Testament that as we see God's provisions, we see his trust, one of the things that happens is that as Israel, they were delivered clearly from uh, Pharaoh by the hand of God. What do they do? They continue, they're continuing in their own strength. They're not looking to the strength of God. And Paul actually brings it to reality to us in Galatians 3. He says, having begun in Christ... Will you continue in the flesh? You know, and there's this deep call to us as we look at this passage that are you going to continue in God or are you continue in your own works? Because in Christ and God we have this beautiful picture of redemption. And so the second thing that we're called to do is to draw near. Look at 16.9. It says, Come near to the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. Come near to the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. In Calvin's commentary on Exodus, he actually says this kind of beautiful, I thought it was a, a, just a helpful way of summing it up. When asking what should Israel have done when this happens, he says the best remedy for their hunger would have been to pray to God, whom they had found in all respects to be a bountiful father. You see, the first way that we draw near to God, the first thing, the first response of Israel that it should have been, was to come and pray to God, God, you have provided in the past, and so I come before you looking for your, looking for your provision now. That's what the psalmist did when he talked about the bulls of Bashan surrounding him. He talked about these enemies coming in on him. He says, God, draw me near to you. And you see this reality that prayer versus complaining is the opposite of unbelief. It's actually living in faith. It's living in this reality that we need God's work for us. We see the character of God. It's revealed over and over throughout Scripture. In Jeremiah 29, if you look at that, you'll probably remember this passage. You will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your hearts. You see, God has this open invitation to his people. Come and seek me. Seek that I, that you, I would draw near to you. And so this prayer is this access to God where we come and we get close to God. Or we were just singing, come you sinners. I love each passage, each verse of that song talks about being sinners 
It talks about being drawn close to God through Christ. It says, Come, you weary, heavy laden, bruised and broken by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you'll never come at all. Even sinners can come to God. Come, you sinners, close to God. That's what we do in prayer. We come to God and we get near to Him. Even as sinners, even as broken people. That feature of prayer, too, that makes it this nearness to God is that it's a proclamation of who God is to our hearts. So there's this place of faith, of struggling faith, and God enlarging that. But that enlarges as we see the character of God when we come before Him. The other thing we see is that Israel actually, and God reveals this to them as they struggle. He says, okay, what you need to do is set up reminders of who I am. Remember we said the, other, the hard thing about, or the, uh, the, the feature of grumbling or complaining, one of the features is, is forgetting. What was the opposite of forgetting? It's remembering. And so God gives them when we, the last part, and this is why we had to read through the whole thing. God actually tells them, he says, okay, I've provided. And what I want you to do is I want you to take this jar of manna. I want you to keep it. And now y'all remember, the man is supposed to go bad every day. And somehow God, and this is how you know it's by the provision of God, he wants them to put it in a jar, and it's going to stay fresh forever. And he says, I want you to put it before the throne of mercy as this remembrance. That's what, that's what happens. And the tabernacle ends up before the throne of mercy. And it's this constant remembrance that God provides for Israel through patient and steadfast love. And y'all, we need to be putting these things up. That's what we do on Sabbath, where we come together and we rest together. We come to remember, y'all, it's not something that's just part of our culture. It's something that God has set up, and we see it here. God says the Sabbath is a time when you remember my glory. And you see, there's a dual nature to that even. That God's saying, you, my, he talks about his glory. But he also says where we get to come and rest in his glory. See, the feature of the Sabbath, the feature of these remembrances, is that God wants to bless and to work in us. That's what we do at the Lord's table. We're going to come to the Lord's table and we do it weekly. It's a remembrance. Now, it's more than that. It's actually the reality of Christ working for us. But it's a remembrance where God works in our hearts. And we need to run to those things. We need to hold on to those things. You ought to encourage you, as you work through uh, God's work in your life, each time you see God's work, set up, uh, set up little reminders. Write in your journal where God has done something significant for you. And when you go into despair, when you go into frustrations, when there's difficulty in your life, in your marriage, in your friendships, and you're tempted to say, God is nowhere in this. Open it up. And remember. Open up God's Word. And see how when the people were starving, when they are thirsty, God was close by. Y'all, we're not very good rememberers. And that's part of our problem. God's Word is not some mystical thing that if you have your quiet time every day, you're going to be a better person. The reason that God's Word is so rich is it's constant remembrance of who God is. It's living and it's active in that way. Take up these things, y'all. The last thing we see is that in coming near to God, we do that through praise. It's kind of interesting that our praises, they're all directed towards God. What Chris talked about this last week is this, in the Psalm of Moses. That as Moses was singing to God, he was receiving the blessings of God. He was receiving the richness of his salvation. If we go back to Genesis 12, the, the character of the people of God is supposed to be set in this place. Where God reveals to, to, to Abraham, their forefather, 
He says this in verses 1 through 13. He says, Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred, from your father's house, to the land that I'll show you, and I'll make you a great nation, and I'll bless you, and I'll make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The people of Israel are the people of God's wonderful affection. And God has promised to bless them. And the response that's called out of that is a response of praise. And you all see that as our, those praises go up, as we praise God for who He is, what we're actually proclaiming out loud is the reality of who God is to us. Israel in the wilderness, they had stopped worshiping God. And so God gives them the Sabbath. He says, okay, now you're going to come. There's going to be a day. Will you remember who I am? See, that's our character as God's people. That it's to reflect and rejoice in the God's saving work. To bring us home, it's interesting that we continue to struggle with unbelief. And it's really is glorious that God continues to reach out to us. The character of God is such that even when we see Israel struggling, He continues to draw near to them. And this is the call that we need to, to, to uh, hear this morning. And what's most beautiful is that we find this again mentioned later in Scripture. If you flip over to John 6, I talked about the wonderful miracles that Jesus did. And it's actually in this passage where the people, different people come up to Jesus they say, what miracles are you going to do, Jesus? And guess what the example of the miracle they say, if you do something like this, we'll believe you. They say, Moses provided manna in the wilderness. What are you going to do, Jesus? And Jesus turns to him and he says, you haven't gotten it at all. Moses provided nothing in the wilderness. God, my Father, provided everything. And he begins to reveal to them this beautiful reality. Look at verse 30. He said to them, they, asked, they were asking Jesus, What sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work you perform? Our fathers, they ate man in the wilderness as it is written. He gave bread to them from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, it is not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. Let's pray. Lord, to have Christ is to be full. Because it is to have the emptiness of our hearts. Lord, that's been sucked out of us because of our sin. It's to have all the goodness replaced, Lord. The goodness of being image bearers of you. Lord, we hear and we see. Lord, even this morning, we get to taste the body of your Son, Jesus Christ, has been given for us. Lord, we rejoice that you are a God of such abundant mercy and such abundant grace.
Lord, that you continue to reach to us. You continue to struggle with our hearts and wrestle with us, Lord, even when we wrestle back. And that you overpower us, Lord. You strike us in the hips with weakness at times, Lord, in order, to re- in order that we would see that our healing, that our hope is in you. Lord, you sometimes you give us a thorn in our flesh where we have to continue to wrestle with our unbrokenness so that our pride does not creep up, Lord, and that we continue to look to Christ. And I pray that that would be something that is full of hope for us. This morning, as we have heard your word, we finally ask, Lord, that you would come near to us. Lord, for we are your people. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.